In standing, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Job, and we'll turn our attention and our reading to all of Job chapter 4. We want to take it all the way through chapter 7 in the sermon as we notice this first cycle of conversation in this book that's going to be full of many such conversations. And so we're going to think tonight about this first talk between a man named Eliphaz and this suffering man named Job. And if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, you can use one of the chairback Bibles and you'll find tonight's text on page 418. Let me get us going then by reading these 21 verses in chapter 4. Then I'll pray and we'll begin. So I do hear now as God speaks to you through his perfect word. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet, who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still. But I could not discern its appearance. A form was before me. There was a silence, and I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between the morning and the evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die? And that without wisdom. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for the insight of your spirit, for the wisdom of your Son this evening as we come to this conversation, that you would speak to us that which we need in order to follow you faithfully. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure as many of you parents can recall or certainly may have even experienced this week, perhaps even this day, much of parenting seems to be adjudicating arguments between the children over something that happened. And I grew up in a family with five sisters and no brothers, and I can recall many an argument happening in our home between the sisters, and this was something to which I was just a mere observer or listener. And so often it was one of those arguments that was, well, this happened. No, it didn't happen that way. Yes, I promised it happened this way, but no, it really didn't happen that way. And with one of my particular sisters who 
will remain nameless for all the obvious reasons. The end of those arguments almost invariably found her saying something that sounded like this. Well, I will always know in my heart that I was right. (laughs) And if you've said that before, you know what that kind of comment means. Well, I know something that not everyone else knows. Or there's a perspective on the situation that not everyone else can comprehend. And I tell you that because as we come to these cycles of conversations in Job that for all intents and purposes occupy the book through chapter 31, at least till Elihu shows up, this young counselor soon to come, almost every conversation between Job and one of his friends at its root is little more than one man saying, I know in my heart that I am right in what I'm saying. I am right in what I'm questioning. I know in my heart I am right in what I am objecting to. And so what we're going to see along the way in our studies in these conversations is that yes, they do so often span many chapters, but at its most basic level, each conversation is entirely basic. There's one simple point about which these men will sometimes debate, sometimes discuss, sometimes argue, quite vehemently even. But there's just one simple thing that brings forth all of this commentary, all of these illustrations, even a number of applications, and quite dogmatic and theological doctrines come as well. And here's the simple question in this first conversation. Do innocent people suffer? That's all that's really circling around these four chapters tonight when you boil it down. Do innocent people suffer? As you might be able to predict, Eliphaz says no. Job says yes. And each man believes in his heart that he is correct. And so even though there are four chapters and the first two are devoted to Eliphaz and the second two are devoted to Job, it really has three essential parts because in chapters 4 and 5, it's Eliphaz giving his counsel to Job. And in chapter 6, it's Job responding to Eliphaz. And in chapter 7, it's really Job turning his attention from his friend and giving then his attention, his words going to God himself. So there's three simple words that I have to guide our time first of which is consolation, Eliphaz seeks to give to Job. Then we find in chapter 6, vexation from Job himself before he gets to this pretty pronounced protestation towards God in chapter 7. So, Eliphaz's consolation, you'll notice again we're told that in verse 1 of chapter 4, Eliphaz was a Temanite. And you may not know much about this tribe, it means that he belonged to the land of Edom which was renowned in that ancient eastern world as being a place of of wisdom. And because Eliphaz is the one that speaks first, it's quite likely that he is the oldest of all of Job's friends, the three men that are sitting there in front of Job. And the subsequent conversations, they show Eliphaz is the kindest. He's the gentlest of all of Job's counselors. And that it says in verse 1, then means we have to remember where we left off in chapter 3. Because remember, it was there for seven days that these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they sat with Job in his mourning. And after the end of seven days and seven nights, a shriek, a shout, a scream really came out from Job as he offered up this lonely lament 
in chapter 3. And it's after he is done. You'll notice verse 26 of chapter 3. We mentioned this, didn't we, last week? These three simple statements. No ease. No quiet. No rest. Only trouble comes. Then now Eliphaz, the oldest, he begins to speak. And his counsel begins, you'll notice, doesn't he say in verse 3 and 4, recognizing that Job is a man that's got a reputation for piety, for holiness. But he's wondering if if Job himself will entertain, perhaps, counsel from a friend. And his counsel boils down to little more than, notice verse 7, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? And in these subsequent speeches that belong to this first cycle and this first conversation, it's almost like each speech has two main parts. And Eliphaz's first main part towards Job is simply two words, be sensible. Be sensible. Job, have you ever heard of someone innocent suffering? He even goes on to say, doesn't he, in verse 8, my experience shows as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble. They reap the same. And you may know that it's a challenge, isn't it, when we counsel people that are suffering, when we try to give comfort to people that are hurting. uh, We can easily, perhaps far too easily, we can universalize our experience where I've always seen this happen and I've always noticed this occur and therefore in light of all of that it must mean this is true of you. But we're going to see that Eliphaz is not just rooting his counsel and his experience because if you speed ahead to verse 12, you'll notice he seems to believe his counsel has the divine revelation undergirding it because he says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. He goes on to say, students, that he's had this dream. And kids, I don't know if you have had a dream this week. I don't know if you can recall details of any of your dreams this week. Uh, I certainly have had something of a strange week when it comes to sleeping. And part of the reason for that is dreams are waking me up in the middle of the night. But you might be like me and I can recall that dreams were waking me up in the middle of the night. I can tell you one detail about a single one of those dreams that were waking me up in the middle of the night. You wake up, you know a dream woke you up, but within Seemingly, the flash of an eye, all the details disappear. But not for Eliphaz. He goes on to say, if you just kind of scan your eyes through the next few verses, not only is this a dream that came to him in the middle of the night, it almost seems like a nightmare. As he tells us that the spirit comes and his hair is standing up from his flesh. And so it's building up, you would think, to this climactic conclusion in Eliphaz's counsel. But it proves to be altogether anticlimactic. Look what he says in verse 17. This is the point. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Job, there is nobody who is innocent. Therefore, you are not suffering as an innocent person. Be sensible, Job. And then as we turn our attention to chapter 5, his counsel is much more sounding like be humble. We'll come back to a few parts of the beginning of chapter 5 later on. But for now, what you want to notice is what he says in verse 8 of chapter 5. Eliphaz says, As for me, 
I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable things, marvelous things, without number. There's a lot of truth in that statement. He goes on to extol this sovereignty of God. It's almost this rich song of sovereignty that God has created all things. He's the maker of all things. He sustains all things. He rules and and governs over all things. And it belongs to Job, therefore, to humble himself before God who is creator. For look what he says in verse 17 of chapter 5. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of God. Of the Almighty. And he goes on to unfold, as we're told in the following verses. Six troubles, verse 19 tell us, and seven evils from which Job will be protected if he humbles himself before God. So that's all Eliphaz is essentially saying to Job. Job, be sensible. Innocent people don't suffer. So instead, what you need to understand is that God is disciplining you. And if you would only humble yourself before his rod of correction, his rod of chastisement, uh, you will be protected from any future harm and pending evil. Look at verse 27, simply the final parting encouragement. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true, hear, and know it for your good. Some of you, I'm sure, have had a time where you have maybe had to take some sort of a standardized test and you've been asked to do something of a word association. You know, it throws out an object or a verb, some of these things that are similar, and you're meant to point out students you might have done this before, something similar between these words. So think with me then about three simple words, three simple objects, and what is similar about each one. Think about a scalpel, a knife, and a sword. Scalpel, knife, sword. So kids, what's similar about each one? What maybe is common between each one? What unites each one? Well, of course, there are a number of things we could say. I mean, each one is sharp. Each one cuts. What I would have you see tonight is, of course, they can be used for good. And they can be used for ill. And when you get to the counsel of Job's friends, maybe you've read Job enough in your Christian life to realize there's a lot that they say that is genuinely and doctrinally true. There is no one who's righteous before God. Galatians 6 seemingly quotes, doesn't it, from even Eliphaz talking about you will reap what you sow. Even the Lord Jesus Christ seemingly quotes from Job when he's talking to letters of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 saying, despise not the Lord's discipline. But what Job's friends are going to show us is that you can have right doctrine wrongly applied You can have correct theology wrongly intended to comfort. Because there's one thing, isn't it, to be able to have all of your T's crossed and I's dotted, theologically speaking. But it's another thing to have the right doctrine and the wisdom and discernment to know when it's right to apply it. Because we're going to certainly see by the end of the book, as Job is one who's going to have to give sacrifices for these friends, that they're going to say many true things But in the final verdict of God, they're going to be quite far off in their application of these truths. Eliphaz says, be sensible. Be humble. That's my consolation. Well, Job bursts out, and you ought to see it as bursting out now in chapter 6 with his vexation. Notice verse 2 of chapter 6. Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. 
And if you glance back to chapter 5, verse 2, Job's playing on something Eliphaz has actually already said, where Eliphaz said, surely vexation kills the fool. And so what Eliphaz is saying, no vexation allowed, and Job comes along when Eliphaz is done speaking, saying, I will be vexed. What have I done wrong to deserve this? And so he begins to speak back to Eliphaz, as he often does with his friends. He's the kind of friend that's suffering, that tends to be a friend that's quite difficult to counsel and comfort in suffering because there's always this pushback. But we have the divine perspective of the book, knowing that the pushback is more often than not entirely correct. And in chapter 6, his pushback has two simple points. The first of which is, it would be better that I die. He wants death. You see verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me and that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. It sounds a lot like what we heard last week in chapter 3 with his lonely lament and his, his desperate desire, really, that he wasn't even born. And then if he was born, why didn't he die outside of the womb and therefore escape all of this suffering? And kids, if you can picture even the metaphor there, it's quite striking. It's as though Job thinks of God as someone who's up in the heavens and he's holding his life by this string. And he, he's just wishing that God would take his sovereign scissors and snip the string and then let him go, because the suffering would then be over. And we'll come back to that at the end, because we dare not think that such a desire is mere suicide in Job's mind. It's actually something quite striking. But he's desiring relief from his distress. And it's not just relief from his distress that he looks for from God, but from his friends also. Because look at verse 24 of chapter 6. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. He says now in verse 28, but now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. He wants comfort. He wants kindness from his friends. He knows that, that kindness is so desperately what he needs. It's why he can say in verse 14, he withholds kindness from a friend, forsakes the fear of the Almighty. It's often in the case when we encounter people who are suffering. What they don't need from us are our profound words of wisdom as much as the presence of our kindness or perhaps said differently, our kind presence of just being there. Job is saying, I'm not looking for these articulations of what exactly has gone wrong. I'm not looking for your diagnosis of what theologically can define and explain what's happening in my life. I'm, I'm just looking for your kindness, for your comfort. And then what he does in chapter 7 is switch his attention. Now, not merely to speak to Eliphaz, but also speak to God himself. And this speech also has two simple parts it almost as though he's saying in the first half, why me? Why me? He says, if you notice in verse couple verses, he's nothing more than like this servant who's a hired hand looking for wages, this allotment of months of emptiness. He goes on to say in verses 4 through 6, you know, his physical form is just covered with dirt and covered with disaster, these clothing of worms and skin that's hard. All of this is breaking out with the summary statement. Look at verse 7, chapter 7. Remember that my life is a breath. 
My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. He's saying to God, who am I? Why am I so important? And then it leads him to really this second point, which takes up the remainder of chapter 7, and the remainder of this conversation. He's essentially telling God, why are you bothering with me? Look at verse 17. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Maybe you've been in a place in your own life of suffering, and you have that question of why me? Why do you seem to be so interested in me? Why do you seem to be so intent on testing me moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year? Well, we know, of course, from earlier in the book exactly why God is so interested in Job. As he told Satan, didn't he, multiple times, I have no one like him. And so God is testing, God is trying Job. And Job is often his protestation to God. Do innocent people suffer? Eliphaz says, no. Job says, yes, I am one. I have a pastor friend that has ministered for many years now with profound physical suffering and really disability. Uh, Much of it's chronic pain related to a muscle issue that means he can't do ordinary tasks, even sometimes as simple depending on the day of lifting a fork to feed himself. And he has, in recent years, had the opportunity to speak about just God's ministry to him in the midst of his suffering and how many of the dreams of his life have been suddenly and unexpectedly dashed because of what the Lord has brought into his life. He wrote even an entire book that was essentially something to encourage Christians like you and me and how to encourage sufferers like him. And he said at one point in the book, you've probably got your own scenes that you've lived through Scenes where you think that if only people knew what was really going on, they might cut you some slack and help you. And it almost seems to be what Job is saying here to Eliphaz. If you only knew what was really going on, maybe you would cut me some slack and not be so quick to tell me that I'm in some way guilty and thus deserving of what has come to me. And so as we begin to close, what I want to do is just tease out a few more things from this first conversation between Job and one of his counselors. The first of which is the counsel of logic. Uh, Sometimes in the Christian life, logic isn't sufficient to bring comfort. Uh, The mere rationality of A plus B equals C doesn't provide the kindness we intended to. Because what you're going to see so often in this book of Job is the logic of his friends meets the lament of Job and the two seemingly can't relate to each other. Uh, Because there are times, aren't there, where the suffering from our perspective, the persecution from our perspective, it doesn't have any logic. And what the soul so desperately needs is not this eloquent exposition of what is logical, but just the kind and comforting presence of a friend, which then even leads to the second thing you need to see is the call of obedience. Because go back to chapter 6. 
You see Job here talking about in verse 8 and 9, this, this longing. And I do think it's an understandable longing for someone in Job's situation. It just would be better if I'm no more. But look what he says in verse 10. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. That latter part of verse 10 is exactly what is still up in the air at this point in Job, isn't it? Will he deny the words of the Holy One? Will he curse God in his suffering? And what Job is simply saying in verse 10, you know, if I died now, I will have died not cursing God's name. If I died now, I would have still been obedient to God's call. It reminds me of a word from an old pastor who once said, a church that is willing to die instead of disobey is unstoppable. In its ministry is what he said. But so much of Job's words is, is coming from this heart and soul that's desperate to obey God and stay close to God. Which leads us to the final thing we need to see is the comfort of Jesus Christ. Go back again to chapter 5. You see, Eliphaz begins telling Job, Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? And there's this sub-theme throughout the subsequent conversations of Job that often is little more than, I need an advocate to argue my case before God. I need someone to represent me before God. And Eliphaz is saying, who are you going to call on, Job? You don't have anyone to argue your case. Well, eventually, he's going to get us to this climactic, crescendo-like moment where he says he knows that he has an advocate, that he has a redeemer that will argue his case, always reminding us, isn't it, that there is comfort to be found in Jesus Christ, as the book of 1 John says. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is the one that can bring our argument before God. And, of course, his argument is actually his own merit, isn't it? For he is the innocent one who suffered in the place of guilty people like you and me. So if you notice what he says in chapter 6. What is my strength that I should wait? Verse 11. And what is my end that I should be patient? He wants sustenance, steadfastness, strength that another might bring to him. And the good news that we see all the way into Scripture, as Jesus Christ comes, is that sustenance, that strength, that steadfastness, while well, it's found in an advocate whose name is Jesus Christ, the truly innocent one who suffered unjustly for people like you and me. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do ask that you would give us Wisdom to know how to best find the comfort and kindness that's found in this wonderful book of Job. We know you're sovereign over all things. We know that life in Christ is so frequently full of suffering. Uh, do allow us to be patient and persevering in whatever situation in which you have placed us. We pray that you would help us from the temptations of the devil. That you would keep us from cursing you that we might likewise be found like Job always clinging close to you as we look to Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.